it's unreal, it continues to be surreal. Wait until you see season two. They don't say no, which is amazing considering my sensibilities. <laughs> I'm Nathan Maharaj, and this is Kobo in Conversation. My guest is Samantha Irby, screenwriter on TV series including Shrill and the Sex and the City reboot and Just Like That, and the author of books including We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, Wow, No Thank You, and the new essay collection, Quietly Hostile. Samantha Irby, welcome to Kobo. Thank you for having me, Nathan. This is a thrill <laughs> of a lifetime. <laughs> When that bio was so nice, and the way you said "Wow, no, thank you" is perfect. Okay, so most two, people don't get the emphasis right. Two points wow, about that: no, that is a title you. which, which straight up actually made me laugh out loud when I was doing when I was doing my job. What part of my job, not just that working on the show, is also uh, creating content for Kobo's blog. And one of the things I do is every week I put together a nice curated new releases list, and I remember. <laughs> When when that essay collection came out and I, and I read the title and that's all it took I just read the title and I was and I and I actually laughed so I had to inflect it correctly. Oh, the, I my heart like grew three sizes and not just uh, because there's plaque in the arteries. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. Also, I want you to know that the way we pick titles, they will not let me title my own work. Because every book would be called like garbage time or like trench mouth. You know what I mean? I would like pick something terrible. So they never have titles when I start. Then once everything is turned in, my editor reads it and jots down phrases that could be good titles. And then I choose one. So wow, no thank you. It was the obvious one from the list. And that same with Quietly Hostile. I was like, that's it. I think that's it. Like ask the, you know, you have to run it by all the marketing and sales and mm -hmm. all the, all the people who like crunch numbers and know things about what people buy, but it's, uh, it's been, a, it's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> well, so I listened to quietly hostile as an audiobook, and, and Oh my God, I'm sorry. No, wait. Okay. So I think <laughs> my opinion among your many talents. I think you're a a great performer of your work. Like I'm for for me, you're like you're like a, a, a instant audiobook listening author because I want to hear you do it because that there's a, <laughs> there's there's a there's value in that that goes beyond the words on the page, which are funny enough as they are. As I said, mm -hmm. I'm already on the record saying literally the title in an Excel spreadsheet made me laugh. But now, as I'm speaking with you, and as I had this on my calendar, and I knew we were going to, I was going to be taking time out of your day to talk to you about these essays. I have been thinking the entire time for weeks leading up to this. Oh, oh no, Nathan, you idiot! Why are you bothering this woman? I think she's had enough. Bothering? Okay. First of all, Nathan, <laughs> we're doing this interview. My favorite way to do interviews, which is where. I sit in my comfy desk chair where I do no work because all of my work is done in a scramble at the dining room table the day before it's due. Uh, I'm I have I'm cropped so you don't have to see what I'm wearing, and you 
can kind of see that the background is a mess, but not really. Also, you know what I was doing before this? Watching an episode of The Real Housewives of New Jersey from like four years ago. <laughs> so, <laughs> there is no such thing as interrupting my day or wasting my time <laughs> unless I'm doing it, which <laughs> every day. At the end of every day, I mean, not every day, but most days, I'm always like, what did you even do? And the answer will be like, I got a coffee. I dropped the dog off at dog daycare. And then the rest of the day evaporated like smoke. So please, this is a thrill. I'm truly, there's nothing pressing. (laughs) Well, okay. Uh, But even if it was, even if there was something pressing, I would talk to you anyway. Oh my God. Oh my God. That's, that's, that's become, that's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with that. That might be a ringtone. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) I do want to ask you though, about the, about spoken, uh, about the spoken performance though, Mm because, because, because it's clearly, it's something you do very well. It's uh, you have a, you have a persona. There's a thing there. I know you're a fan of some of like the great canonical, especially like the seventies black standup comics. I'm thinking Mm of, you know, Richard Pryor, Paul Mooney, um red fox um uh which coincidentally as i think about it these these are comics who in, in my experience of them i think a lot of listeners experience of them they're they're folks who go for humor in places where a listener may literally have never gone before they may be laughing at, at a topic that they've never laughed at before yeah and it's like it's it's part of the thrill of it yes or the kind of thing that you're like should i yeah like for the good of my soul and my standing as a citizen, right? Should I listen to this and laugh? <laughs> Nobody can know I'm laughing at this right now. Yes, yes, yes. And we're having to do that more and more <laughs> lately, like having our secret laughs. Um, yeah, I was always. I think the first stand-up I ever saw was Eddie Murphy Raw, mm-hmm. and truly for a child (laughs) that much concentrated swearing is a thrill but it's also it's storytelling I always love like a storytelling stand-up artist who did I say stand-up artist stand up stand up oh my god I'm gonna sound like my own grandmother I want to see a stand-up artist okay (laughs) I think that when, like, watching people tell funny stories as if it's a secret between them and the audience, like, you guys, I'm just going to tell you this thing and we're <laughs> going to laugh. And then I I am a sucker for that. And in Chicago, there's a pretty, I don't know how active it is anymore, but we call it the live lit community, which is essentially storytelling but cooler sounding Mm. storytelling and it takes place in bars and clubs and not your usual like library reading series and I did that for years and years I used to host one called the Sunday Night Sex Show and then I hosted another one called Guts and Glory so I have performed my work for a long time like I've been out like saying 
awful things in front of people in exchange for their laughter <laughs> um, for a long time. And I, I can't help. It sort of feels like not canned. That's the wrong word, but mm. I can very easily slip into performance me and mm. like deliver a piece rather than like read it. If mm. that makes sense. Yeah. So the, the audiobooks are always fun for me. I got a different director this time, and he's an actor. Oh. So he, my last director was a writer, and I was like, oh, we're just like, you know, two angry squirrels in a bag. We don't know what we're doing. And then, <laughs> the, I shouldn't say that. She's great. But then working with the actor, he was like giving me voice acting notes, which was amazing it was why you know i've never i'm too self-conscious to ever act or do anything mm -hmm. so to have someone jet and we were we couldn't see each other he was just he was in my headphones over mm. zoom with the engineer and so having him hear my voice and then telling me what to do with it, it was it was amazing it was amazing when you were performing those pieces on stage and and developing that craft of 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 the oral presentation of, 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 of these, of these pieces, how, um, how rigid was your structure of them? Were they fully written down and you were essentially performing from memory? I never, if I can help it go off book hmm. because I think I can tell you a funny story, right? Like I can sit here now and look at you and tell you something funny and it'll be funny. You'll laugh the whole thing. But what I do in my writing sometimes gets so intricate and detailed. And I really, I think like the minutia is really where you get the funny stuff. Mm -hmm. I, I could never memorize those long run on sentences. I write and I feel, I feel like for me, that's the difference between being a writer and just being like a funny person, you know? Is like I can be, you can take me to dinner and I'll be hilarious, but it won't sound like my work because mm -hmm. my work has its own voice. So I would always read. But the thing I like to do is to sort of break character in between and talk to the audience. So I'll read something and then I'll be like, what an idiot, right? And then that <laughs> gets people yeah. involved. So that that's pretty much, I mean, that's the drawback of doing audiobooks is there's no one to pause for laughter <laughs> for. Um, so that that's a little weird because like I'm doing my audience thing, but no audience. Mm. But yeah, I am an on-book person because I just use too many words and <laughs> I don't want to forget any of them. Those lists could spiral out of control. I mean, yes. God help you, you get stuck on a list item. Oh, I love, you know, I love a list. If I could just do a whole book of lists, I don't think anyone would pay me to do it, but I would. <laughs> I, I love it. But it it makes the, that like an impossible thing to do on stage. Yeah. 
something I like to do in interviews generally, sort of my 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 safe spot, the thing I like to hang on to is to ask ask about creative choices. Um, mm-hmm. not like inspiration. I think that's that's kind of dumb. Nobody wants to talk. Where do ideas come from? That's that's silly. <laughs> but more like like the decisions that you have to make when you're when you're when you're making something. Like I'm gonna do this, but I'm not gonna do that. I could have done that, but I'm no good at it. So I went this way or whatever. Mm-hmm. And and I <laughs> in an essay that uh in this book quietly hostile that I'm going to refer to for the sake of brevity and other reasons as two old nuns, quote unquote, <laughs> as well as the, piece the about, best, as well as a piece about QVC. I realized that this like interrogating of like creative choices and like really like getting into it, like, huh, that's something you do as well. Um, yeah. And you do it in the damnedest places. Is is that is that something that's always been interesting to you? Or is it more like a thing where you, you realize it was a vein of comic gold? I, so this book in particular was written like now in the pandemic when we're, well, you know, a couple years ago. When yeah, we're not wh- whatever doing, chapter this is. <laughs> you know, we're not doing uh, as much, but we're not doing nothing. So part of, I wasn't doing enough in the world to really have a lot of world stories to tell, you know, mm. like this happened to me at the grocery store. Cause like, you know, I didn't really go to the grocery store, but I, so then, you know, I'm like trying to think of what would go in a book because at this stage in my career, they don't make me uh, turn in an outline beforehand. They're just like, you know, I say, I'm going to do the same thing I always do. And they're like, okay okay girl do what you want and then I turn it in and they're like oh this (laughs) but so I was kind of I was like okay we got a dog I'm gonna write about getting a dog because I hate this dog um I, I tried to make a tv show that didn't work and then it's like well what how do I consume how do I entertain myself so then it's like well I watch a lot of QVC, (laughs) so I'm going to write about that. And then my editor last book was like, this does not have enough sex in it. And I was like, well, (laughs) I'm a 40-year-old person. I'm a 40-year-old woman married to a 45-year-old woman. There's not a lot of, like, watching TV together and eating, like sharing a pint of ice cream is sex. Yeah. And I believe I've written about that a million times. There's plenty of sex in this book. So I was thinking, I was like, okay, I got to come up with something nasty for Maria, but how can I do it in my way? And it turns out I decided to write about my favorite uh, porn which is a 39 minute video um with two old nuns seducing each other. Mm. <laughs> 39 minutes is a lot that's a lot of material. There's a lot of now, choices I made along the way. I have never watched all 35 minutes, but it is. It's I mean, it's downright cinematic. <laughs> <laughs> um does did you say it was Maria that had that uh, is that the Yeah, Maria's my editor. Is your editor is is Maria aware that that this that this uh does she know she's that's her fault? Yes, because <laughs> because when I sent it in, well so first I was like 
uh, can you have the lawyer look at this? Because I cannot be going to jail for <laughs> uh, writing about this like copyrighted video or whatever. So that was like my first thing, like, uh, get the lawyer to look at this one first <laughs> before I get too attached. But then I told her, I was like, yeah, man, you said you wanted sex. You didn't say what kind. <laughs> so this is what you get. And she, I mean, she loved it. She is the, I mean, if you saw us together, you'd be like, I can't believe those people know each other, let alone, she's <laughs> tiny, she's so nice, shy, so quiet, like, not in a demure way, but in a, like, like, brooding intellectual like if mm. you saw her on a college campus she would be like smoking clove cigarettes and right. like you know too cool too cool for school and then here i am like a clown <laughs> being like look at me look at me and <laughs> she i'm she's the most amazing editor and every book i just send her things that like as i'm clicking send i'm like Poor Maria. So, <laughs> yes, she knows this is her fault. And she claimed to love it, which I'm not going to argue with her. I'll just take her at her yeah, word. Life is even short. Even though I don't really believe her. <laughs> um, well, it's it's funny. It's, so as, as we're talking about this, like this process of making a book, and it's it's, it's not just one person. We, we There's one, oh. one name on the cover, but it's there's more than that. And, and this is kind of a thing I, I, I like to ask about um, people with experience like you have when in working in TV and movies um, where they're very different spaces to operate in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, uh, writing a book is pretty independent, pretty freehanded. Screenwriting is like you're not you can't do anything unless 75 people uh, want you to do it. And then a Correct. further 75 think you did an OK <laughs> job of it. Mm -hmm. and none of them do like the 75 will have notes um yep. somehow more than 75 notes is how it'll turn out yes. right yes but but you you said uh in 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 other interviews um that that you actually find books to be collaborative you don't find it like a full binary um and i wonder if you could talk to talk a little bit about that because it's uh, you have such a singular voice i think it would surprise readers to know mm -hmm. that you would regard your essay writing as a as a collaborative endeavor yeah, well, so I do write everything alone in a panic, usually at 3 a.m. when the deadline is looming or like the fake deadline because they yeah. have to give me fake ones. Other if They can't give me the real deadline. Otherwise, I would never have a book. Uh, it would just all be pending. Um, <laughs> I So then when I'm done with what I'm going to do, my editor takes it. So we, we edit in, I'm going to mess this up, a few, I can't count how many, a few, a few ways. First, she edits like for content, continuity, that kind of the things I don't pay attention to, frankly. Mm. Uh, you know, you drop the ball here. I love a little more detail here. I turned in the the thing I wrote about my show or my failed attempt at making a show. This was based on your earlier book, Meaty. And she immediately was like, this needs 2000 words cut. And so I was like, well, 
you do it. <laughs> so, so there's like, that's phase one where we get it kind of shaped up. And then it goes to the copy editor with whom I have like an invisible relationship with, right? Because her notes are in the margin, but I've never met her. She's worked on all the books. She knows me. She knows what I'm trying to do. We've never met and we only communicate through comments in the margins. So that's phase two. Then uh, the fact checker gets a hold of it. I do not research anything. So the fact checker has many things to look up. You're welcome for having that job. <laughs> and then I get it back and I'm supposed to reread it and approve the changes. I don't, I just approve the changes so we can get to the next step. And then from there, I I think maybe the first time I went to like, I physically went to the Random House building, they had a lunch for me and there were so many people at this lunch and it was so over what I was like, wait, wait, whoa, whoa. All of you work in some way on this thing. And they were like, uh, yeah, stupid. Like there are <laughs> marketing people and salespeople and publicity and, and they all get to weigh in, right? You, they get mm -hmm. to weigh in on the title and the cover and how are we going to sell this? And I'm so grateful you know like mm. that that i have because i really worry about like stepping in my own vomit and it's it's so nice to know that truly 10 12 15 20 people lay eyes on it before it reaches the world and if one of a, a lawyer has to read it before it can go to print and like I, I am so great. It's like our book at the end. Like I mm. started, but they did all this stuff. I don't know how it's typeset or what font it is. I mean, I'm a little bit of an incurious person. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it is, it is, it's a group effort, but in a different way than TV writing is a group effort where you just are like batting around ideas all day and making each other laugh and everything that ends up in every script was sort of touched by each person in some way in book writing it feels like it's all me and it mm. is up to a point mm. and then when i turn it in that's our book <laughs> you know like it's as much maria's and oh i'm i'm going to be an cuz i can't remember the the copy editor's name but it's her book it's a, the the mm. woman joan who does my covers yes it's joan's book you know it's like a big it's it's one big collaboration do you have a sense of how you've learned to work with that i'm thinking of your your you're starting out as a blogger where it really mm -hmm. is just just you and the blank screen and like and the audience to the extent that you can intuit that they're out there through whatever interactions you get. Mm -hmm. How did you how did you learn to continue to do the thing you do um, in this in this other <laughs> this is the the irony is, of course, the publisher wants a book by Samantha Irby, this this mm -hmm. blogger, but but Samantha Irby, the blogger, is going to have to go through a process quite unlike writing a blog <laughs> yes. to get the to get the book made. 
Yes. Do you, do you have a recollection of like that learning curve and like maybe mistakes or like flashes of wisdom that hit you as you were learning it? Oh, I definitely, uh, I have a big mistake that I'll tell you about, but uh, I, so generally I am, um, I don't know if this is a word, but I'm a deferrer. <laughs> like if you mm. know more than I do about something, I'm thrilled. Like, at, please this punch to let you go ahead and talk about it, take control, whatever. So I'm I'm incredibly easy to edit because if the editor is like, this doesn't work, I don't fight. I just assume that like, yes, you've trained to do this. I haven't. So yeah, whatever you want to do. I think, so I, I put out Meaty, my first book came out on an, ind on an indie press mm. um, where they were like, do whatever you want. I had no editor, no nothing. If you find one of those old copies, you'll see. <laughs> and I just did whatever I wanted, which is like fun, but there's no fail safe. And so it, I, I took pretty quickly to being guided and directed because I, especially in the beginning, had no idea what I was doing, had no idea if anyone would buy or listen to or borrow these books. So that that was pretty seamless, like the working with an editor part. For my, my first book with um, Vintage Random House, I... I had a different editor and she she left everything was fine don't worry she just started right she became a writer um but I did not like the first cover they mm. sent and I thought that like you could be honest <laughs> with a it's like this woman just read a bunch of pages about me my wife we can talk to each other right so I wrote her this email that wasn't rude, but it was too rude for her about the first cover that I didn't like. Mm. And my agent, who is scary, <laughs> messaged me and was like, uh, you made your editor cry. This is a big deal. When you get the next cover, don't say anything. So I was like, okay. So then we got the cover with the cat on it, which is not what I was anticipating. But because I had already f***ed up and been reprimanded. Oh, sorry if I can't swear. No, no. Um, it's all edited. We'll fix it. Okay. I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't say anything. So I just had to be like, mm, mm, the cat. And the yellow, mm-hmm, okay. <laughs> and so luckily, I, I mean, honestly, I don't know how people, like from the cover, I don't know if I would look at that. I'd be like, oh, some crazy freak cat lady. I'm not reading, <laughs> I'm not reading that. There's nothing cool in there. So it was, um, I, I learned that you pay your agent to have those conversations right. and he will have them in a diplomatic way. And now I just, I, everything just goes to him. So mm. he can, he can decline 
and, you know, say things on my behalf. That I think was the hardest thing to adjust to is mm. having like handlers, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I, I got two publicity people who make the schedule. They do not ask. And I'm I'm not saying this is if they should, but they don't ask, hey, do you want to do this podcast? Or, hey, I think this would be a good idea. They have their sources, they get their requests, and they set it up. And that, to me, is weird because I've never been, like, I don't have an assistant. I don't have people managing my schedule. I mean, my wife and I share a digital calendar, but I don't even look at it. So (laughs) that, to me, is the hardest thing is, like, having... It almost makes me like rebellious in a teen way, like having people who are like, are you here yet? Or did you go to that thing? And I'm like, oh, I hate this. (laughs) (laughs) That to me is hard. The being edited or learning how to write in a way that like pleases more people than myself, which is what I do on my blog. Just like Mm. I got to make me laugh. That wasn't hard, but the figuring out all the ancillary people, I hope I use that word right, who are also like kind of in charge of me, that mm-hmm. takes some getting used to. Yeah. I mean, I really, my, all my, my worst days at work it, in the book business were the result of me failing to recognize a necessary intermediary step that I mm-hmm. thought, I thought I was helping by going around it. And, mm-hmm. and I was Yeah. Yeah. No, it's that is my entire behind the scenes career for real is like, you shouldn't do that. And I'm like, whoa, not again. But yeah. And then they're like, not again. I can't believe like do the things we tell you to do. We put it all on one sheet of paper. Just do it. And I still am adjusting (laughs) all these years later shifting to your screenwriting um yeah you wrote the pool episode of the tv series shrill um Mm -hmm. it's 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 just it's it's incredible to look back on it but it is just the fourth episode in the first season and it's a big swing Mm -hmm. you're you're writing this show that has you know the writing process has to be done before anything shot so no idea of how it's going to be taken no idea of yep how it will be received um, and the episode, for those who haven't seen it, uh, has this this glorious like Wonderland scene where the main character attends a pool party, um, mm-hmm. uh, which is attended by uh, fat women, mm-hmm. and they're in swimsuits and they look great and they're having a great time, and mm-hmm. and it's a, just a great piece of TV and it's Thank and it's singular. You. It really stands out. When I think of Shrill, I think of I th- I think of I think of the character sitting there fully fully clothed, all buttoned up, while everyone else is having a great time. <laughs> Yeah. And the glorious underwater shots and things. Ugh. You've you've written a lot of TV since then. Um, and I wonder, do you think you'd be a different screenwriter today if you hadn't gotten not just that opportunity, but if if that if that opportunity hadn't hadn't so like beautifully just manifested in like taking the vision right to the screen? The thing about the pool episode was so we knew we needed because we had a short season. And we need we were sort of loosely following Lindy's book and her, I don't know, I hate the word journey, but you know, her yeah. journey. 
And we knew we needed some sort of event to start the ball rolling for this character to like start changing her mind. And Lindy and I have been like, you know, deep in the fat lady community for a long time. And I know about the exercise classes and the dances and the this and the that. And we thought like uh, the pool would be great because we've all been to like Chunky Dunk or whatever. And truly in terms of like the, like uh, the audience, it would have the most impact because they would be in swimsuits. So when I wrote it, I, I remember writing the pool party scene and just being like, I want it to look like Candyland. I just want it to be, because, you know, the thing about like fat representation, it's like, it's not enough just to have a fat person on the screen. Right. Because usually they're in some humiliating, like, I didn't want it to be like fat girls in a, like a pool that was filled with bugs at a horrible like motel. I wanted it to be nice. So I wrote that in the script. It's a party we want to be in. (laughs) Like that party's happening. And I'm like, would they be weirded out if I, it just looks, I'd like to be there. They just, they just look nice. Yeah, I just, no, I would like to hang out. Not weird at all. I would <laughs> make you a drink and pull up a chair for you. So, so, but I didn't have, I didn't have any control over how things looked or what, you know, I was there for the writing room and then my job was over. So I flew out to Portland to like work on the episode when it, when they were shooting it. And the day we went to this country club in Oregon to see the pool, I had two fears. One, that it was going to look terrible. And two, that all of the extras would be Hollywood fat. Mm. So like a bunch of like size eights and tens in bikinis. So I had this like pit of dread in my stomach. Lindy and I walked out to see the pool and I almost started crying. It was just so beautiful. I, you know, I haven't, it was my first Hollywood job and, and I, and I still haven't worked in TV that long, like not long enough that I expect for my dreams to be realized. Mm. So to walk in there and see that they made this beautiful, beautiful set just because I dreamed that up was incredible. The director was so good. I mean, it was so nice. I know it cost them a lot of money. And then we went into this ballroom where all the extras were. And Lindy was like, let's go say hi. And we walked in and I just see all these like actually fat women getting and not just like sitting there in their home bikinis. They're they're making swimsuits for them. Mm-hmm. They're getting their hair done. They're getting their makeup done. They were just like treated so beautifully. And it was such an incredible experience all around. I wish someone had been shooting like a behind the scenes, mm. you know, so yeah. that so that people could people could see it. But it truly was like magical and movie sets or tv sets are usually not magical it's like you know sit there and watch the artists do their their thing but it it was incredible i can't and i can't believe it was my first thing and i got to do it it was like it was amazing 
do you think you might be spoiled like at this point you're like, yes! like the the normal injuries and humiliations that are due a screenwriter you're like but no <laughs> i wrote that episode of shrill well so i tried to make my own show and that failed i just had another show rejected oh. <laughs> that keeps me humble mm. also i worked on a couple very small budget shows where in the writer's room they're like uh this is taking place in her apartment do not we are not location scouting for <laughs> you and that that's like a different kind of that's a side to it that i didn't even know existed until mm -hmm. i started doing it that you have to think about what do these things cost it was uh, almost it was like shell shock to work on the sex in the city reboot after working i worked on an animated show and then Tuka and birdie yeah. and i worked on work in progress and those are like smaller budget shows where i mean there's just there's only so much you can do in animation hmm. um and so working on and just like that where the budget what budget right <laughs> like i if i was like uh i want my episode to be on mars they'd figure it out and get us to mars and that that kind of luxury is rare and i i completely take advantage of it i'm like how many different bougie locations can we go to um how many is my father mr hbo willing to pay for and it turns out a lot <laughs> I, th I think we're allowed to call him daddy max now <laughs> daddy max that's perfect that is perfect i'm stealing it daddy max yes so I'm glad I'm glad you we 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 are making this transition because you've been a you've been a Sex in the City fan for ages like way back from the jump. Yeah. I yes. mean we're we're about the same age. My wife is 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 the same age. She's like got all the DVDs or like Oh, me too. And I think in your first book you indicate that you're a Miranda. Uh I am also <laughs> a Miranda. Um as far as I understand it, I I I've, I've only watched a series like once all the way through, so I think That's I'm a Miranda. That's incredible though. Yeah. So, so yeah, so I good think, for you. Yeah. Your wife's very lucky. Got a good man. <laughs> I am also quite fortunate. <laughs> so you're, you're working with these characters. You're, you're, as, as you say, you're right. You're working with these characters. Now you're in mm -hmm. this universe. That's got to be absolutely surreal. Completely. But my question. I, okay. First of all, I could <laughs> not believe that they want that they wanted me to work on this show. I still am like, are you sure? Right. Two seasons, <laughs> two seasons in. So then, like, once I got it was like official. Mm. I was like, okay, bring your hopes way down. Let's be realistic. You are gonna pitch jokes. You're gonna like bring some humor to the writers' room. You're gonna be a little clown. They are mm. not going to let you really dig your gross paws into these iconic characters. And then on the first day, Michael Patrick King was like, oh, yeah, all of your just pitch all of your ideas, whatever you think they're they they weren't. And I don't know if I if I could have been this selfless, they weren't like these are our characters and they can only do so much. Every ridiculous idea they entertained, 
the Chucky in the subway. That was from me. I can't believe <laughs> they let me put it in the show. I can't believe that Sarah Jessica peed in a Snapple bottle and they let me put. Th- I. It's just. It's unreal. It continues to be surreal. Wait until you see season two. It. I. <laughs> they don't say no, which is amazing considering my sensibilities. <laughs> <laughs> so what I wanted to ask you though was um you've been you you so there's an essay in in this book quietly hostile called Superfan and I want the record <laughs> to show that I have seven exclamation points on it because <laughs> I pay attention to details just like in the book. Thank you. Um and what was what was surprising was that that essay appears in this book but it, it wasn't earlier. How and and it's not it's not all based on it. I mean, it, it's it's kind of dressed around the edges with your experience of writing on uh, just mm-hmm. like that. But it really is you as a super fan. Um, yes. Including my favorite part is uh, your favorite <laughs> Carrie Bradshaw outfits as as best you recall. And and just, I did it from memory too. It was rough. I love that. <laughs> how did this? How did you? Were you carrying? Like were you like I have a. A, I have I have so I have several thousand words on Sex and the City to write, but I'm not, but not just yet, not this book, and not the next book, and and now it was time. Well, so I think we lived through the like, rena- not Renaissance, but the period of time in which everyone was writing their Sex and the City take, you mm-hmm. know, and there were people like looking back at what the series got wrong, and then. Uh, I will never forget that Alita Nugent piece where she added up what Carrie's life costs and how she could never afford it writing a newspaper column. Um, And I read all that and I was like, well, I'm just like an unabashed fan of the show. I don't have anything to say about it. Then when I was working on the show, I was like, okay, I'm going to write about this. But... I cannot mess up a check. And at the point that I wrote it, we, ha- I think we had gotten a season two and I'm not trying to get fired from this job that I like. So I was like, I don't want to write about it in the present. tense. I like to write about things when they're over, you know, like mm. when I know how it ends, I always start every essay with knowing where I'm going. And because this was a job that I hopefully was going to continue to work on. I don't want to alienate anyone. So I was like, I don't want to write about this show, but I will. I have exhaustive knowledge of these characters and episodes. Why not tease everyone by acting like I'm going to write about the show they want to hear about and then go through the episodes of the old show. So if we don't get renewed, if I get fired, one of those things happens, then I'll write about how I murdered mr big in cold blood but (laughs) (laughs) until then i'm trying to get a check it's hard to get a tv job (laughs) these days yeah hang on to it so i i i think i heard in an interview um that you that you had recently been diagnosed with ocd yes well so i have just been diagnosed with adhd and and I, for my part, as I discovered my neurodivergence or whatever whatever we're couching it in, uh, <laughs> I was afraid of discovering that 
I don't have a personality. Uh, I'm actually just a consequence of 45 years of dopamine seeking symptoms, right? Like that was the thing I was, I was afraid of. Mm -hmm. And I was worried about like, well, treatment, like what, what, what will treatment do? Will it like, will I just yeah. like evaporate? Like, who will I be? What will I do? Yeah. And for you who works from personal experience, who, for, for whom your perspective is so important uh, and your observation of yourself is so important. Did you have fears or reservations about going down that path of learning, you know, that you have OCD and, and what might make it better? Yes. I, I mean, you know, the first thought, and this is disgusting is, well, I'm right about it one day. <laughs> Always great to be diagnosed with a new thing that I can spend a couple thousand words on. Um, so I, I did, you know, what's wild about being diagnosed at this age, mm. especially for a person whose like problem is ruminating on things <laughs> is going through my life and thinking about all the things that were maybe OCD, all my habits that were the OCD, all my thoughts. So that is a uh, harrowing to think about that. Mm -hmm. And I really was worried that I am on I'm on 300 milligrams of Zoloft a day, mm -hmm. which is a lot. I believe the book is dedicated to Zoloft. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I couldn't have gotten this done without, without you. Also, I'm trying to have a Zoloft truck pull up and yeah. dump a bunch of pills at my door. I don't know who makes it. <laughs> Pfizer, I hope you're listening. Um, but I was worried. And my psychiatrist was like, you know, it doesn't rewire your whole brain it doesn't change your entire personality but that is hard to accept mm -hmm. but I think I got to the point where the effects of OCD were hindering my life in a way that was like well I'll just take it and I'll learn to be funny you know it'll be like mm. flowers for algernon or something <laughs> like i'll i'll teach myself how to laugh again um but nothing happened like mm. i mean mine now who knows how the ocd is actually doing but it didn't affect my ability to write or it didn't impact my thinking in a way that I thought would change mm -hmm. my writing. So ultimately, I mean, I feel like just personally, I can't be publicly complaining about things that I don't and and that there's treatment available. And mm -hmm. then I'm like, but you know what? I'm going to not take meds so I can stay crazy and my writing can still be good. Like I am too old to play that kind of Russian roulette so I was like, I'll just take a chance. And then, you know, I ended up being able to write still. Um, so I'm going to stay on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I mean, I'm just going to, it keeps the, the noise in my head turned down to a manageable volume, which mm -hmm. is truly like the most I think I can ask for. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, aside from being lobotomized, which I would also welcome. <laughs> I think that I think that's not as fashionable as it used to be, but live long <laughs> enough, stuff comes back. Dang, it'll come back. It'll I come trust back. it. <laughs>
So uh, I would be remiss not to note that uh, the weird, we are speaking on Juneteenth, which is now a U.S. federal holiday. And when I was asking my colleagues if anybody had anything that they wanted to ask Samantha Irby, because I'm talking to her on the 19th of June, the only question I got back was, so you're making Samantha Irby work on June 9th, uh, on Juneteenth? <laughs> yes. First of all, this is slavery. Shame on you. I'm working for free <laughs> on Juneteenth. That's yes. It, there you go. Let That's... me call Al Sharpton or Mar somebody wake up Martin Luther King. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't even a question. Wait, I'm not sure. Maybe it it's an a apology. Bank holiday? Yeah. Is it a bank holiday? It's uh, it, or don't... do we still get mail? I should know this because I live in America. Yeah, I, was gonna say, I don't think you're getting mail today. Um, yeah. Oh, no I mail. Was, okay. Yeah. Then I guess it's a real holiday, but like, I, maybe it's one of those holidays where people just give you stuff. You don't have to like, take time off to think about anything, you know, like, a, be, yeah. like a birthday, <laughs> <laughs> the birth, the birth of my freedom day. There That's go. so terrible. But Yeah. I don't mind working on Juneteenth. You're in Canada. It doesn't matter. You don't yeah. have to keep up. I don't know when Boxing Day is, and I would probably <laughs> call. I don't know when your Thanksgiving is. I know it's different than ours. If I accidentally made you do a harrowing interview on Canadian Thanksgiving, <laughs> I would hope that I would get a pass. I'm just kidding. This is not harrowing. This is a joy. I would ex I would extend to you a pass. Uh, I just had to say, I had to come clean because I was thinking if I ever get around to writing humorous essays based on my own life experience, um, this is part of it. Yeah, you. I, I mean, it's too bad I didn't. You know, I didn't dress for the occasion. I <laughs> I need to get a kente cloth or something. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk with me. This is incredible. I'll talk to you anytime. <laughs> this is great. I have been speaking with Samantha Irby, author of many extremely funny books. The latest one is Quietly Hostile. Find it in all the books we spoke about, uh, including your other ones, and <laughs> Flowers for Algernon's there too. Kobo.com slash conversation. There's a link in the show notes. Uh, you should subscribe in your podcast player to catch every episode and send this episode to a friend, especially, especially if you listen to any part of it in a bathroom. We didn't even get the bathroom stuff in this in this conversation, but it's there. If, you, if you're a fan of, of Sam's, uh, then you, you know what I'm talking about. Couple in Conversation is produced and occasionally hosted by me, Nathan Maharaj. Thank you for listening. That was so great. Yeah, we the bathroom stuff will be a horrible surprise for all of these people who've never heard of me before. I can't wait for you to get a letter to the editor. Yes. That's like... I can't believe you made me read that terrible woman's book. Why did you make me buy this diarrhea book written by the <laughs> dumbest bitch I've ever seen put <laughs> words to page? Uh you can forward you can forward those to my agent. He'll respond. He'll respond to them.